0: Section 5 of The Trampling of a Leaf But the said more. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fall of Edward Barnard, Part 2 Now Bateman asked himself if Arnold Jackson could think him ignorant of the most terrible scandal that Chicago had ever known, but Jackson put his hand on Edward's shoulder. "'I can't sit down, Teddy,' he said. "'I'm busy, but you two boys had better come up and die tonight.' "'They'll be fine,' said Edward. "'It's very kind of you, Miss Jackson,' said Bainman, frigidly. "'But I'm here for so short a time. My boat sails tomorrow, you know. I think if you'll forgive me, I won't come.' "'Oh, nonsense! I'll give you a native dinner. My wife's a wonderful cook. Teddy will show you the way. Come early, so as to see the sunset. I can give you both a shake down if you like.' "'Of course we'll come,' said Edward. There's always the devil of a row in the hotel on the night the boat arrives, and we can have a good yarn up at the bungalow. I can't let you off, Mr. Hunter, Jackson continued, with utmost cordiality. I want to hear all about Chicago and Mary. He nodded and walked away, before Bateman could say another word. We don't take refusals in Tahiti, laughed Edward. Besides, you get the best dinner on the island. What did he mean by saying his wife was a good cook? I happen to know his wife's in Jennifer. That's a long way off for a wife, isn't it? said Edward. And it's a long time since he saw her. I guess it's another wife he's talking about. For some time, Bateman was silent. His face was set in grave lines. But looking up, he caught the amused look in Edward's eyes, and he flushed darkly. "Anna Jackson is a despicable rogue, he said. I greatly fear he is. "'answered Edward, smiling. "'I don't see how any decent man can have anything to do with him. "'Perhaps I'm not a decent man. "'Do you see much of him, Edward?' "'Yes, quite a lot. "'He's adopted me as his nephew.' Bateman leaned forward and fixed Edward with his searching eyes. "'Do you like him?' "'Very much.' "'But don't you know, doesn't everyone here know, "'that he's a forger and that he's been a convict?' He ought to be handed out of civilised society. Edward watched the ring of smoke that floated from his cigar into the still-scented air. I suppose he is a pretty and mitigated rascal, he said at last, and I can't flatter myself that any repentance for his misdeeds offers one an excuse for condoning them. He was a swindler and a hypocrite. You can't get away from it. I never met a more agreeable companion. "'He's taught me everything I know.' "'What has he taught you?' cried Bateman in amazement. "'How to live?' Bateman broke into ironical laughter. "'A fine master. "'Is it owing to his lessons that you lost the chance of making a fortune "'and earn your living now by serving behind a counter in the ten-cent store?' "'He has a wonderful personality,' said Edward, smiling good-naturedly. "'Perhaps you'll see what I mean tonight.' I'm not going to die with him, if that's what you mean. Nothing would induce me to set foot within that man's house. Come to oblige me, Bateman. We've been friends for so many years. You won't refuse me a favour when I ask it. Edward's tone had in it a quality new to Bateman. Its gentleness was singularly persuasive. If you put it like that, Edward, I'm bound to come. He smiled. Bateman reflected moreover that it would be as well to learn what he could about Arnold Jackson. It was plain that he had a great ascendancy over Edward, and if it was to be combated, it was necessary to discover what exactly it consisted. The more he talked with Edward, the more conscious he became that a change had taken place in him. He had an instinct that it behooved him to walk warily, and he made up his mind not to broach the real purport of his visit till he saw his way more clearly. They began to talk of one thing and another, of his journey, and what he had achieved by it, of politics in Chicago, of this common friend and that of their days together at college. At last, Edward said he must get back to his work, and proposed that he should fetch Bateman at five, so that they could drive out together to Arnold Jackson's house. By the way, I rather thought you'd be living at this hotel, said Bateman, as he strode out of the garden with Edward. I understand it's the only decent one here. Not I, laughed Edward. It's a deal too grand for me. I rent a room just outside the town. It's cheap and clean. If I remember right, those weren't the ponds that seemed most important to you when you lived in Chicago. Chicago? I don't know what you mean by that, Edward. It's the greatest sitter in the world. I know, said Edward. Bateman glanced at him quickly, but his face was inscrutable when are you coming back to it? I often wonder, smiled Edward. This answer, and the manner of it, staggered Bateman, but before he could ask for an explanation, Edward waved to a half-caste who was driving a passing motor. Give us a ride down, Charlie, he said. He nodded to Bateman, and ran after the machine that had pulled up a few yards in front. Bateman was left to piece together a mass of perplexing impressions, Edward caught for him in a rickety trap drawn by an old mare, and they drove along a road that ran by the sea. On each side of it were plantations, coconut and vanilla. And now and then they saw a great mango, its fruit yellow and red and purple, among the massy green of the leaves. Now and then they had a glimpse of the lagoon, smooth and blue, with here and there a tiny islet graceful with tall palms. Arnold Jackson's house stood on a little hill, and only a path led to it. So they unharnessed the mare and tied her to a tree, leaving the trap by the side of the road. To Bateman it seemed a happy-go-lucky way of doing things, but when they went up to the house, they were met by a tall, handsome native woman, no longer young. With him, Edward cordially shook hands. He introduced Bateman to her. This is my friend Mr Hunter. We're going to die with you, Lavinia. All right, she said, with a quick smile. Arnold ain't back yet. We'll go down and bathe. Let us have a couple of pareos. The woman nodded and went into the house. Who is that? asked Bateman. Oh, that's Lavinia, She's Arnold's wife. Bateman tightened his lips, but said nothing. In a moment, the woman returned with a bundle, which she gave to Edward, and the two men scrambling down a steep path, made their way to a grove of coconut trees on the beach. They undressed, and Edward showed his friend how to make the strip of red tray cotton, which is called a pareo, into a very neat pair of bathing drawers. Soon they were splashing in the warm, shallow water. Edward was in great spirits. He laughed and shouted and sang. He might have been fifteen. Bateman had never seen him so gay and afterwards, when they lay on the beach, smoking cigarettes, in the limpid air, there was such an irresistible light-heartedness in him that Bateman was taken aback. "'You seem to find life mighty pleasant,' said he. "'I do.' They heard a soft movement, and looking round saw that Arnold Jackson was coming towards them. "'I thought I'd come down and fetch you two boys back,' he said. "'Do you enjoy your bath, Mr Hunter?' "'Very much,' said Bateman.' Arnold Jackson, no longer in spruce ducks, wore nothing but a pareo round his loins and walked barefoot. His body was deeply browned by the sun. With his long, curling white hair and his ascetic face, he made a fantastic figure in the native dress, but he bore himself without a trace of self-consciousness. "'If you're ready, we'll go right up,' said Jackson. "'I'll just put on my clothes,' said Bateman. Why, Teddy, didn't you bring a pareo for your friend? I guess it would rather wear clothes, smiled Edward. I certainly would, answered Bateman, grimly, as he saw Edward gird himself into the loincloth and stand ready to start before he himself had got his shirt on. Won't you find it rough walking without your shoes? he asked Edward. It struck me the path was a trifle rocky. Oh, I'm used to it. It's a comfort to get into a pareo when one gets back from town, said Jackson. If you were going to stay here, I should strongly recommend you to adopt it. It's one of the most sensible costumes I have ever come across. It's cool, convenient, and inexpensive. They walked up to the house, and Jackson took them into a large room with whitewashed walls and an open ceiling, in which a table was laid for dinner. Bateman noticed that it was set for five. Eva, come and show yourself to Teddy's friend, and then she us a cocktail called Jackson. Then he led Bateman to a long, low window. Look at that, he said, with a dramatic gesture. Look well. Below them coconut trees tumbled down steeply to the lagoon, and the lagoon in the evening light had the colour, tender and varied, of a dove's breast. On a creek, at a little distance, were the clustered huts of a native village, and towards the reef was a canoe, sharply silhouetted, in which were a couple of natives fishing. Then beyond, you saw the vast calmness of the Pacific and twenty miles away, airy and unsubstantial, like the fabric of a poet's fancy, the unimaginable beauty of the island, which is called Muria. It was all so lovely that Bateman stood abashed, "'I've never seen anything like it,' he said at last. Arnold Jackson stood staring in front of him, and in his eyes was a dreamy softness. His thin, thoughtful face was very grave. Bateman, glancing at it, was once more conscious of his intense spirituality. "'Beauty,' murmured Arnold Jackson. "'You seldom see beauty face to face. "'Look at it well, Mr. Hunter.' For what you see now, you will never see again, since the moment is transitory, but it will be an imperishable memory in your heart. You touch eternity. His voice was deep and resonant. He seemed to breathe forth the purest idealism, and Bateman had to urge himself to remember that the man who spoke was a criminal and a cruel cheat. But Edward, as though he heard a sound, turned round quickly. Here is my daughter, Mr Hunter. Bateman shook hands with her. She had dark, splendid eyes, and a red mouth tremulous with laughter. But her skin was brown, and her curling hair, rippling down her shoulders, was coal black. She wore but one garment, Mother Hubbard of pink cotton. Her feet were bare, and she was crowned with a wreath of white-scented flowers. She was a lovely creature. She was like a goddess of the Polynesian spring. She was a little shy, but not more shy than Bateman, to whom the whole situation was highly embarrassing, and it did not put him at his ease to see this sooth-like thing take a shaker and, with a practised hand, mix three cocktails. Let us have a kick in them, child," said Jackson. She poured them out and, smiling delightfully, handed one to each of the men. Bateman flattered himself on his skill in the subtle art of shaking cocktails, and he was not a little astonished, on tasting this one, to find that it was excellent. Jackson laughed proudly when he saw his guest's involuntary look of appreciation. Not bad, is it? I taught the child myself, and in the old days in Chicago, I considered that there wasn't a bartender in the city that could hold a candle to me. When I had nothing better to do in the penitentiary, I used to amuse myself by thinking out new cocktails, but when you come down to brass tacks, there is nothing to beat a dry martini. Bateman felt as though someone had given him a violent blow on the funny bone, and he was conscious that he turned red and then white. But before he could think of anything to say, a native boy brought in a great bowl of soup, and the whole party sat down to dinner. Arnold Jackson's remark seemed to have aroused in him a train of recollections, for he began to talk of his prison days. He talked quite naturally, without malice, as though he were relating his experiences at a foreign university. He addressed himself to Bateman, and Bateman was confused and then confounded. He saw Edward's eyes fixed on him, and there was in them a flicker of amusement. He blushed scarlet for it struck him that Jackson was making a fool of him. And then because he felt absurd and knew there was no reason why he should, he grew angry. Arnold Jackson was impudent. There was no other word for it, and his callousness, whether assumed or not, was outrageous. The dinner proceeded. Bateman was asked to eat sundry messes, raw fish, and he knew not what, which only his civility induced him to swallow, but which he was amazed to find very good eating. Then an incident happened, which to Bateman was the most mortifying experience of the evening. There was a little circlet of flowers in front of him, and for the sake of conversation, he hazarded a remark about it. "'It's a wreath that Eva made for you,' said Jackson. "'But I guess she was too shy to give it you.' Bateman took it up in his hand and made a polite little speech of thanks to the girl. "'You must put it on,' she said, with a smile and a blush. "'I?' I don't think I'll do that. It's the charming custom of the country, said Arnold Jackson. There was one in front of him, and he placed it on his hair. Edward did the same. I guess I'm not dressed for the part, said Bateman uneasily. Would you like a pareo? said Eva quickly. I'll get you on in a minute. No, thank you. I'm quite comfortable as I am. Show him how to put it on, Eva, said Edward. At that moment, Bateman hated his greatest friend. Eva got up from the table, and with much laughter placed the wreath on his black hair. It suits you very well, said Mrs Jackson. Don't it suit him, Arnold?" Of course it does. Bateman sweated at every pore. Isn't it a pity it's dark, said Eva. We could photograph you all three together. Bateman thanked his stars it was, He felt that he must look prodigiously foolish in his blue serge suit and high collar, very neat and gentlemanly, with that ridiculous wreath of flowers on his head. He was seething with indignation, and he had never in his life exercised more self-control than now when he presented an affable exterior. He was furious with that old man sitting at the head of the table, half-naked, With his saintly face and the flowers on his handsome white locks, the whole position was monstrous. Then dinner came to an end, and Eva and her mother remained to clear away, while the three men sat on the veranda. It was very warm, and the air was scented with the white flowers of the night. The full moon, sailing across an unclouded sky, made a pathway on the broad sea, led to the boundless realms of forever. Arnold Jackson began to talk. His voice was rich and musical. He talked now of the natives and of the old legends of the country. He told strange stories of the past, stories of hazardous expeditions into the unknown, of love and death, of hatred and revenge. He told of the adventurers who had discovered those distant islands, of the sailors who, settling in them, had married the daughters of great chieftains, and of the beach-combers who had led their varied lives on those silvery shores. Bateman, mortified and exasperated, at first listened sullenly, but presently some magic in the words possessed him, and he sat entranced. The mirage of romance obscured the light of common day. Had he forgotten that Arnold Jackson had a tongue of silver, a tongue by which He had charmed vast sums out of the credulous public, a tongue which very nearly enabled him to escape the penalty of his crimes. No one had a sweeter eloquence. No one had a more acute sense of climax. Suddenly he rose. Well, you two boys haven't seen one another for a long time. I shall leave you to have a yarn. Teddy will show you your quarters when you want to go to bed. Oh, but I wasn't thinking of spending the night, Mr. Jackson.' said Bateman. "'You'll find him more comfortable. We'll see that you're caught in good time.' Then, with a courteous shake of the hand, stately as though he were a bishop in canonicals, Arnold Jackson took leave of his guest. "'Of course I'll drive you back to Papiti if you like,' said Edward. "'But I advise you to stay. It's bully driving in the early morning.' For a few minutes, neither of them spoke. Bateman wondered how he should begin on the conversation which all the events of the day made him think more urgent. When are you coming back to Chicago? he asked suddenly. For a moment Edward did not answer. Then he turned rather lazily to look at his friend and smiled. I don't know. Perhaps never. What in heaven's name do you mean? cried Bateman. I'm very happy here. Wouldn't it be folly to make a change? Men alive! You can't live here all your life. This is no life for a man. It's a living death. Oh, Edward, come away at once before it's too late. I've felt that something was wrong. You're infatuated with the place. You've succumbed to evil influences. But it only requires a wrench, and then you're free from this surroundings. You'll thank all the gods there be. You'll be like a dope fiend when he's broken from his drug. You see then that for 2 years you've been breathing poisoned air you can't imagine what a relief it will be when you fill your lungs once more with the fresh pure air of your native country he spoke quickly the words tumbling over one another in his excitement and there was in his voice sincere and affectionate emotion edward was touched it is good of you to care so much old friend come with me tomorrow edward It was a mistake that you ever came to this place. This is no life for you. You talk of this sort of life and that. How do you think a man gets the best out of life? Why? I should have thought there could be no two answers to that. By doing his duty, by hard work, by meeting all the obligations of his state and station. And what is his reward? His reward is the consciousness of having achieved what he set out to do. It all sounds a little pretentious to me said Edward, and in the lightness of the night, Bateman could see that he was smiling. "'I'm afraid you think I've degenerated sadly. There are several things I think now which I dare say would have seemed outrageous to me three years ago.' "'Have you learned them from Arnold Jackson?' asked Bateman scornfully. "'You don't like him. Perhaps you couldn't be expected to. I didn't when I first came. I had just the same prejudice as you.' He's a very extraordinary man. You saw for yourself that he makes no secret of the fact that he was in the penitentiary. I do not know that he regrets it or the crimes that led him there. The only complaint he ever made in my hearing was that when he came out, his health was impaired. I think he does not know what remorse is. He is completely unmoral. He accepts everything, and he accepts himself as well. He is generous and kind. He always was, interrupted Bateman, on other people's money. I found him a very good friend. Is it unnatural that I should take a man as I find him? The result is that you lose the distinction between right and wrong. No, they remain just as clearly divided in my mind as before. But what has become a little confused to me is the distinction between the bad man and the good one. Is Arnold Jackson a bad man who does good things, or a good man who does bad things? It's a difficult question to answer. Perhaps we make too much of the difference between one man and another. Perhaps even the best of us are sinners, and the worst of us are saints. Who knows? You will never persuade me that white is black, and that black is white, said Bateman. I'm sure I shan't Bateman. Bateman could not understand why the flicker of a smile crossed Edward's lips when he thus agreed with him. Edward was silent for a minute. When I saw you this morning, Bateman, he said then, I seemed to see myself as I was two years ago. The same collar, the same shoes, the same blue suit, the same energy, the same determination. By God, I was energetic. The sleepy methods of this place made my blood tingle. I went about and everywhere I saw possibilities for development and enterprise. There were fortunes to be made here. It seemed to me absurd that the copra should be taken away from here in sacks and the oil extracted in America. It would be far more economical to do all that on the spot, with cheap labour, and save freight. And I saw already the fast factories springing up on the island. Then the way they extracted it from the coconuts seemed to me hopelessly inadequate. And I invented a machine which divided the nut and scooped out the meat at the rate of 240 an hour. The harbour was not large enough. I made plans to enlarge it, then to form a syndicate to buy land, put up two or three large hotels and bungalows for occasional residents. I had a scheme for improving the steamer surface in order to attract visitors from California. In twenty years, instead of this half-French, lazy little town of Papete, I saw a great American city with ten-storey buildings and streetcars, a theatre and an opera house, a stock exchange and a mayor. But go ahead, Edward, cried Bateman, springing up from the chair in excitement. You've got the ideas and the capacity. Why? You'll become the richest man between Australia and the States. Edward chuckled softly. But I don't want to, he said. Do you mean to say you don't want money, big money, money running into millions? Do you know what you can do with it? Do you know the power it brings? And if you don't care about it for yourself, think what you can do. Opening new channels for human enterprise, giving occupation to thousands. My brain reels at the visions or words have conjured up. Sit down then, my dear Bateman, laughed Edward. My machine for cutting the coconuts will always remain unused. And so far as I am concerned, streetcars shall never run in the idle streets of Papiti. Bayman sank happily into his chair. I don't understand you, he said. It came upon me little by little. I came to like the life here, with its ease and its leisure, and the people, with their good nature and their happy smiling faces, I began to think... I'd never had time to do that before. I began to read. You always read. I read for examinations. I read in order to be able to hold my own in conversation. I read for instruction. Here I learned to read for pleasure. I learned to talk. Do you know that conversation is one of the greatest pleasures in life? But it wants leisure. I'd always been too busy before, and gradually all the life that had seemed so important to me began to seem rather trivial and vulgar. What is the use of all this hustle and this constant striving? I think of Chicago now, and I see a dark, grey city, all stone. It is like a prison, in a ceaseless turmoil. And what does all that activity amount to? Does one get there the best out of life? Is that what we come into the world for? To hurry to an office and work hour after hour till night? then hurry home and die, and go to a theatre? Is that how I must spend my youth? Youth lasts so short a time, Bateman. And when I am old, what have I to look forward to? To hurry from my home in the morning to my office, and work hour after hour till night, and then hurry home again, and die, and go to a theatre? That may be worth while if you make a fortune, I don't know, it depends on your nature. But if you don't, is it worthwhile then? I want to make more out of my life than that payment. What do you value in life, then? I'm afraid you'll laugh at me. Beauty, truth, and goodness. Don't you think you can have those in Chicago? Some men can, perhaps, but not I. Edward sprang up now. I tell you when I think of the life I led in the old days, I'm filled with horror. He cried violently. I tremble with fear when I think of the danger I have escaped. I never knew I had a soul till I found it here. If I had remained a rich man, I might have lost it, for good and all. I don't know how you can say that, cried Bateman indignantly. We often used to have discussions about it. Yes, I know. They were about as effectual as the discussions of deaf mutes about harmony. I shall never come back to Chicago, Bateman. And what about Isabel?" Edward walked to the edge of the veranda, and leaning over, looked intently at the blue magic of the night. There was a slight smile on his face when he turned back to Bateman. Isabel is infinitely too good for me. I admire her more than any woman I have ever known. She has a wonderful brain, and she's as good as she's beautiful. I respect her energy and her ambition. She was born to make a success of life, I am entirely unworthy of her. She doesn't think so. But you must tell her so, Bateman. I? cried Bateman. I'm the last person who could ever do that. Edward had his back to the vivid light of the moon, and his face could not be seen. Is it possible that he smiled again? It's no good your trying to conceal anything from her, Bateman. With her quick intelligence, she'll turn you inside out in five minutes. You'd better make a clean breast of it right away. I don't know what you mean. Of course I shall tell her I've seen you. Bateman spoke in some agitation. Honestly, I don't know what to say to her. Tell her that I haven't made good. Tell her that I am not only poor, but that I am content to be poor. Tell her I was fired from my job because I was idle and inattentive. Tell her all you've seen tonight and all I've told you. The idea, which on a sudden flashed through Bateman's brain, brought him to his feet, and in uncontrollable perturbation he faced Edward. Man alive, don't you want to marry her? Edward looked at him gravely. I can never ask her to release me. If she wishes to hold me to my word, I will do my best to make her a good and loving husband. Do you wish me to give her that message, Edward? Oh, I can't. It's terrible. It's never dawned on her for a moment that you don't want to marry her. She loves you. How can I inflict such a mortification on her? Edward smiled again. Why don't you marry her yourself, Bateman? You've been in love with her for ages. You're perfectly suited to one another. You make her very happy. Don't talk to me like that. I can't bear it. I resign in your favour, Bateman. You are the better man. There was something in Edward's tone that made Bateman look up quickly, but Edward's eyes were grave and unsmiling. Bateman did not know what to say. He was disconcerted. He wondered whether Edward could possibly suspect that he had come to Tahiti on a special errand, and though he knew it was horrible, he could not prevent the exultation in his heart. What will you do if Isabel writes and puts an end to her engagement with you? he said slowly. Survive, said Edward. Bama was so agitated that he did not hear the answer. I wish you had ordinary clothes on, he said, somewhat irritably. It's such a tremendously serious decision you are making. The fantastic costume of yours makes it seem terribly casual. I assure you, I can be just as solemn in a pareo and a wreath of roses as in a high hat and cutaway coat. Then another thought struck Bateman. Edward, it's not for my sake you're doing this. I don't know, but perhaps this is going to make a tremendous difference to my future. You're not sacrificing yourself for me. I couldn't stand for that, you know. No, Bateman. I have learned not to be silly and sentimental here. I should like you and Isabel to be happy. But I have not the least wish to be unhappy myself. The answer somewhat chilled Bateman. It seemed to him a little cynical. He would not have been sorry to add a noble part. Do you mean to say you are content to waste your life here? It's nothing less than suicide. When I think of the great hopes you had when we left college, it seems terrible that you should be content to be no more than a salesman in a cheap John store. Oh, I'm only doing that for the present and I'm gaining a great deal of valuable experience. I have another plan in my head. Arnold Jackson has a small island in the Pomotas. About a thousand miles from here, a ring of land round a lagoon, he has planted coconut there, is offered to give it me. Why should he do that? asked Bateman. Because if Isabel releases me, I shall marry his daughter. You? Bateman was thunderstruck. "'You can't marry a half-caste. "'You wouldn't be so crazy as that. "'She's a good girl, and she has a sweet and gentle nature. "'I think she would make me very happy. "'Are you in love with her?' "'I don't know,' answered Edward reflectively. "'I'm not in love with her as I was in love with Isabel. "'I worshipped Isabel. "'I thought she was the most wonderful creature I had ever seen. "'I was not half good enough for her. "'I don't feel like that with Eva.' She's like a beautiful exotic flower that must be sheltered from bitter winds. I want to protect her. No one ever thought of protecting Isabel. I think she loves me for myself, and not for what I may become. Whatever happens to me, I shall never disappoint her. She suits me. Bayman was silent. We must turn out early in the morning, said her at last. It's really about time we went to bed. Then Bayman spoke, and his voice had in it a genuine distress. I'm so bewildered. I don't know what to say. I came here because I thought something was wrong. I thought you hadn't succeeded in what you set out to do, or were ashamed to come back when you had failed. I never guessed I should be faced with this. I'm so desperately sorry, Edward. I'm so disappointed. I hoped you would do great things. It's almost more than I can bear to think of you wasting your talents and your youth and your chance in this lamentable way. "'Don't be grieved, old friend,' said Edward. "'I haven't failed. I've succeeded. "'You can't think with what zest I look forward to life, "'how full it seems to me and how significant. "'Sometimes, when you are married to Isabel, you will think of me. "'I shall build myself a house on my coral island, and I shall live there, "'looking after my trees, getting the fruit out of the nuts "'in the same old way that they have done for unnumbered years,' I shall grow all sorts of things in my garden, and I shall fish. There will be enough work to keep me busy, and not enough to make me dull. I shall have my books and Eva, children, I hope, and above all, the infinite variety of the sea and the sky, the freshness of the dawn, and the beauty of the sunset, and the rich magnificence of the night. I shall make a garden out of what so short a while ago was a wilderness. I shall have created something, The years will pass insensibly, and when I am an old man, I hope that I shall be able to look back on a happy, simple, peaceful life. In my small way, I too shall have lived in beauty. Do you think it is so little to have enjoyed contentment? We know that it will profit a man little if he gain the whole world and lose his soul. I think I have won mine. Edward led him to a room in which there were two beds. And he threw himself on one of them. In ten minutes, Bayman knew by his regular breathing, peaceful as a child's, that Edward was asleep. For his part he had no rest, he was disturbed in mind, and it was not till the dawn crept into the room, ghostlike like and silent, that he fell asleep. Bayman finished telling Isabel his long story. He had hidden nothing from her, except what he thought would wound her or what made himself ridiculous. He did not tell her that he had been forced to sit at dinner with a wreath of flowers round his head, and he did not tell her that Edward was prepared to marry her uncle's half-caste daughter the moment she set him free. But perhaps Isabel had cleaner intuitions than he knew, for as he went on with his tale, her eyes grew colder, and her lips closed upon one another more tightly. Now and then she looked at him closely and if he had been less intent on his narrative, he might have wondered at her expression. What was this girl like? She asked, when he finished. Uncle Arnold's daughter, would you say there was any resemblance between her and me? Bateman was surprised at the question. It never struck me. You know I've never had eyes for anyone but you, and I could never think that anyone was like you. Who could resemble you? Was she pretty? said Isabel smiling slightly at his words. I suppose so I dare say some men would say she was very beautiful. Well, it's of no consequence. I don't think we need give her any more of our attention. What are you going to do, Isabel? he asked then. Isabel looked down at the hand which still bore the ring Edward had given her on their betrothal. I wouldn't let Edward break our engagement because I thought it would be an incentive to him. I wanted to be an inspiration to him. I thought if anything could enable him to achieve success, it was the thought that I loved him. I have done all I could. It's hopeless. It would only be weakness on my part not to recognise the facts. Poor Edward. It's nobody's enemy but his own. He was a dear, nice fellow. But there was something lacking in him. I suppose it was backbone. I hope he'll be happy. She slipped the ring off her finger and placed it on the table. Bateman watched her, with a heart beating so rapidly that he could hardly breathe. "'You're wonderful, Isabel. You're simply wonderful.' She smiled, and standing up, held out her hand to him. "'How can I ever thank you for what you've done for me?' she said. "'You've done me a great service. I knew I could trust you.' He took her hand and held it. She had never looked more beautiful.' Oh, Isabel, I would do so much more for you than that. You know that I only ask to be allowed to love and serve you. You're so strong, Bateman, she sighed. It gives me such a delicious feeling of confidence. Isabel, I adore you. He hardly knew how the inspiration had come to him, but suddenly he clasped her in his arms, and she, all unresisting, smiled into his eyes. Isabel, "'You know I wanted to marry you the very first day I saw you,' he cried passionately. "'Then why on earth didn't you ask me?' she replied. She loved him. He could hardly believe it was true. She gave him her lovely lips to kiss, and as he held her in his arms, he had a vision of the works of the Hunter Motor Traction and Automobile Company growing in size and importance till they covered a hundred acres.' and of the millions of motors they would turn out, and of the great collection of pictures he would form, which should beat anything they had in New York. He would wear Han's spectacles, and she, with the delicious pressure of his arms about her, sighed with happiness, for she thought of the exquisite house she would have, full of antique furniture, and of the concerts she would give, and of the day song, and the dinners to which only the most cultured people would come. Bateman should wear horn spectacles. Poor Edward! she sighed. End of section five.